0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, UPC.org. Amen. Well, I may be setting myself up for failure tonight because it's 5.30 and um, I'm about to spend quite a bit of time talking about food. If you haven't eaten dinner yet, you're going to be able to eat it very soon. So hopefully I'll be able to maintain your attention until you can do that. It's really George's fault. Yeah, that's good, Janie. Blame the senior pastor who's not here. It's George's fault because the series that we have just started um, is looking at meals in Scripture. So don't blame me if you're thinking about food because I'm talking about food and it happens to be dinner time. Um, When it comes to eating... I was thinking about eating and coming to tables, and I was thinking about table manners and how they've kind of lost a little bit of their prevalence um, in our society, wouldn't you say? Um, we still have cultural norms and expected decorum that we have for people, but maybe it's because we spend a lot less time eating at tables. There's fewer things that are universal. So I was trying to figure out what are the proper table manners that we expect, Um so I went to the internet to see what I could find to found an expert's take that I want to share with you. Um, writer Dave Barry, he's made an appearance before here at UPC, and he's probably the best person we could look to for um, table manners. So I want to tell you what Dave Barry has to say about that. I have here a letter from Jean Gertis, who teaches family and consumer science to 6th graders at the Donegal Middle School in Marietta, Pennsylvania. She states... Dave, I would like to ask your help in teaching my students the importance of good manners. It would be a great help if you could write a brief letter about what is involved in your profession and how manners, particularly table manners, impact your career. Okay, here goes. Dear Donegal Middle School students, Without good table manners, you will never get a prestigious job such as a business executive, brain surgeon, or humor columnist. Table manners have had a large impact on my career. When I invite important news sources out to lunch, I impress them by showing that I know the do's and don'ts of dining etiquette, such as, do shout your guest's order into the drive-thru speaker before shouting your own, do ask your guest to please steer the car while you apply ketchup to your hamburger. Don't snatch fallen french fries from the seat of your car and eat them without first distracting the news source by shouting, Hey, look over there. Yes, students, good table manners do make a difference, which is why you must listen carefully to your teacher. Because the rules of etiquette can be tricky. Suppose you sit down to a formal dinner and there are three forks at your place sitting. Which fork should you use? The answer, the cleanest fork. Using your left hand and starting with the outside fork, hold up each fork, examine it carefully for signs of crud. If you see any, you should quietly, without drawing attention to yourself, to be polite. Switch it with the fork taken from the person sitting immediately on your right. <laughs> so these are just um, some some um, ideas about proper table manners from an expert, Dave Barry. Last Sunday, George started us on this journey of a new series for a new year called Turning Tables, looking at instances throughout the book of Luke when Jesus sits down with people to share a meal. In these meals, Jesus turns to turn, to turn people's expectations upside down. He always says the opposite of what people expect. He does what no one thinks he'll do. He surprises everyone over and over. Now, because we have the benefit of the entire narrative of Scripture, we know what Jesus is doing, what he's embarking on, is trying to help start, form a community. He's forming the community of the church, a community that is going to continue to gather around a table. And this is started in the Gospel of Luke, and it takes its shape in the Gospel writer, um, of Gospel writer Luke's sequel, the book of Acts. Now, as a church, as University Presbyterian Church, we are hoping to look at these table encounters with similar eyes as the disciples. We know that Jesus is teaching, empowering, challenging, informing the disciples and all his followers through what he does and what he says at these table encounters, at these meals. So our challenge as we go through this series and we read these encounters in Luke is to experience Jesus In a similar way to what the disciples experience, we want to look at Jesus through their eyes because we want to know how can we all of us as followers of Jesus, those who work in a church and those who are a part of a congregation, how can all of us be challenged? How can we how can we discover what it is Jesus is doing and saying in these table encounters when he does what no one expects? Before we look at the meal we're going to look at tonight, um, I want to stop a minute and pray. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would fall upon us tonight. We pray that we would be challenged, that we would be inspired, and we would be encouraged by your, your actions in the book of Luke. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In your holy name, amen. So the table encounter that we're looking at tonight is probably the biggest meal in all of Scripture. It's a miracle that if you grew up going to Sunday school, you probably um, saw in brilliant 2D flannel graph a time or two. It's Jesus feeding the 5,000. But before we read that particular biblical account, I actually want to back up just a little bit and see what happens right before Jesus feeds the 5,000. So why don't you go ahead and um, open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 9. It's on page 842 in uh, your pew Bibles. And, And this place, Jesus is calling together the disciples to send them out. So let's look at chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. I think sometimes we forget that um, even before the Great Commission, before Jesus' death and resurrection, he actually sent the disciples out to go preach the good news and heal the sick. I like to look at this as maybe kind of a training wheels run. And I wonder what the reaction of the disciples was. Uh, you're not coming with us? Okay, this is going to be interesting. Or perhaps, knowing that Jesus had empowered them and um, had given them authority, they were excited, they were confident, and also they knew they were going to be able to come back and relate to Jesus what happened and get his feedback on the experience. And they were able to go out and heal and preach the good news. So they return after this experience. We don't hear a lot about what happens. They return after this experience. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 10. And as we do, um, I want you to think about what in this table encounter was Jesus kind of going against expectations. What would have been surprising? So um, verse 10 of chapter 9, we'll pick it up there. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out about it, they followed him and he welcomed them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed to be cured. The day was drawing to a close and the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions. For we are here in a deserted place. But he said to them, "'You give them something to eat.' They said, "'We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people,' for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, "'Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each.' They did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven And blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and all ate and were filled. Were filled. What was left over was gathered up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. I would imagine the disciples would have loved to tell Jesus what had happened during their experience, so they head to Bethsaida to have probably what was like a debrief or a retreat together. Spending time in community. But as so often happens in the Gospels, the crowds found them. They found Jesus. And Jesus doesn't turn the crowd away saying, look, I've got my crew of disciples here. We're going to have to postpone. Um, This isn't a good time for me. He actually welcomes them. He preaches and he heals those who need to be healed. He is present with them in the moment when they are ready to hear about the kingdom of God and experience Jesus right then. Well, it becomes obvious after hours that these people are probably getting a little bit hungry. So the disciples come to Jesus and they tell him, logical, rational plan, we should send everybody away. Let them get something to eat. Let them feed themselves. But Jesus doesn't do what people expect. The logical thing. He looks right back at the disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. You feed them. This isn't a spiritual feeding, literal. Give them food. In the original Greek, you is emphasized, so it's almost like Jesus pointing a finger. You, get them some food. The disciples are kind of like, okay, what do you want us to feed them with? We have five loaves and two fish. Pretty insignificant. Jesus instructs the disciples, get everybody organized into groups of 50. I think this is proof that Jesus was a Presbyterian. He's putting them into small committees. And he blesses the food and he hands it back to the disciples. And the disciples actually hand it out. And miraculously, everyone, over 5,000 people, eat, and there are over 12 baskets left over. Simply put, this miracle is Jesus' love and compassion on full display. He welcomes these people in. And he doesn't just care about hungry people. He does something. And he inspires his followers and his church to do something as well. He doesn't hand out tracts. He doesn't tell them to abide in patient resignation with their hunger. Or maybe think about taking up fasting. Jesus simply feeds. And he takes what seems totally insignificant, and he makes it abundant. As we look at this table encounter through the eyes of the disciples, there are several things that challenge and inspire and teach us. As a church because of how Jesus once again overturns expectations. He contradicts religious expectations, social, cultural expectations. And as we read this, we read this miracle 2000 years later, he overturns what we expect to happen at the table as well. Now I want to look at what some of the expectations are that we bring to the table and how this miracle actually speaks into those expectations. First expectation that I think that we have when we come to a table is we think that the food is going to be ready. The food's going to be prepared, right? Um, I don't know if this has happened to any of you, but have you ever been invited to someone's house for dinner and they say, come over at 6:30, and somehow there's a miscommunication and you get there and they haven't started cooking until you get there at 6:30, but you're hungry, ready to go. So they start cooking and by the time it's ready, two hours later, you're ready to gnaw your arm off. Is this, am I the only person this has happened to miscommunication? It makes me sound like a terrible person. And I probably guaranteed none of you will now invite me over to your house for dinner. I would love to come. Just make sure the food's ready. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding, but we expect the food to be ready when we come to the table. Frequently, what I hear people say when it comes to serving others in some capacity is, I need to wait until I'm ready, Till I'm more spiritual, Till I have more knowledge. I'm more equipped. I'm not ready yet. And while there are some areas of service that require specific skills, most of the time, if we waited until we were 100% ready to do anything in serving, we would never do anything at all. And if that were the case, if we waited till we were cooked to perfection, so to speak, don't worry, I'm just getting started with the cooking puns, if we waited until we were totally ready, would we really need Jesus? Probably not all that much. When Jesus tells his disciples, you should feed them, what do the disciples do? First, they count what they have, and then they kind of look back at Jesus. And Jesus takes what they have, he blesses it, and he gives it back to them, so the disciples are actually able to serve the needs that are right in front of them. I love the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And one of the things I love about it most is that it actually calls us to rely on Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus is actually telling us to rely on him so that he can fill us. So that he can comfort us, so that he can love us. And by so doing, we're going to be able to serve others. Because we have relied on Jesus. When the disciples are sent out at the beginning of chapter 9, they're sent out with the empowerment and with the encouragement and with the presence of Jesus. And just like them, we are totally ill-prepared. But we, too, have the empowerment and the presence of Jesus in order to serve what needs are right in front of us. A second expectation I think we bring to the table is that when we get there, the utensils we need are going to be present. Right? If we're having soup, there will be a spoon. Eating tomato soup with a fork is kind of a fruitless endeavor. I had this experience. I spent some time in Kenya, and the first few times I came to dinner, um, there were no utensils. And we'd have, like, stew and, like, the salad kind of thing. And I finally figured out that the Kenyans actually used this cornmeal called, called ugali as the utensil. And they used it to pick up everything else they ate. So I tried it, and after I had sufficiently spilled enough food on the front of my shirt, they gave me a fork, which was really nice. But I expected to have utensils that I could use. How often do we assume that we're incapable of something because we don't have the right utensils, the right skills, the right people in place in order to make ministry happen the way that we think it should happen? The disciples thought they didn't have enough food in order to serve the people right in front of them. A couple summers ago, I served as a chaplain at Swedish Hospital. And going into this experience, I knew I did not have the skills to be a chaplain. I'm, I'm not emotional at all, and I had no idea what to say in those circumstances, and I'm really logical and rational. And um, my for the first three weeks, you know, I had this experience of how terrible I was as a chaplain, and I was telling my supervisor about it, pacing her office and telling her, these are all the ways that I am a terrible chaplain. She looked at me and said, Janie, shut up. Here's the skills you have to be a great chaplain. You're very calm, so you have a very calming presence. People don't want to hear you. They want you to listen to them. And the fact that you're logical and rational means that you're not going to become so emotionally involved with that patient that you can't leave the room and move on to the next patient who needs you to be their chaplain. You actually have the perfect skill set to be a chaplain. I had no idea. I hadn't paid attention to the skills I did have in order to serve. This miracle is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four gospels and they all say the same thing. Jesus and the disciples fed 5,000 people and he always uses what is right in front of him. Five loaves and two fish, blesses them and hands them out. He doesn't whip up a giant feast out of thin air, abracadabra, poof, to feed all of these people. He uses what is at his disposal. The Christian faith is nothing if it can only count to seven. What we can glean from this miracle is that disciples should be able to count to eight. Five loaves, two fish, and one. Seven and one. Jesus says to the disciples, bring them here to me. And one is what happens. And, and one is what you want to hear if you're a basketball fan, right? If, uh, if your team scores a point, there's a whistle, there's a foul, and then you get and one, one more point with the free throw. That is what Jesus does in this miracle. This is true for the church. This is true for our church. To help a needy world, Jesus uses what the church actually has in its hands and gives to the church to multiply for the service of the world when Jesus says, bring them here to me, it is a call for, for practical obedience. No matter how insignificant the things that we have seem to be, no matter how insignificant your contribution might actually look, what we have to offer is way more useful than we think it is, because with Jesus' blessing, it can bring about help in the most creative ways. Things we would never consider. Uh, the final expectation I want to talk about tonight is um, the expectation we have that if it looks like there's not going to be enough food to go around, someone is going to go hungry. I think this is true, especially when you're at a buffet. Um, I, someone I follow on Twitter um, sorry, I'm on the Twitters. actually tweeted this yesterday. A buffet is where you find out what kind of person you really are. Which I think is true, right? Are you the kind of person who's, when you're there, you're piling your plate as high as you can because you want to make sure you can get all you can the first time through, or the person who's really anxious in line kind of watching? It reminds me of when we take students to the Dominican Republic at spring break. Sometimes we've taken up to 70 people, and we always eat buffet style. And the staff always waits back and lets the students go first. And as we're standing there, we're always kind of thinking, do you think there's going to be any pineapple left? Is there, is is there, oh, oh, it's going down. Oh, I don't think we're going to get any pineapple. And then it's smashed plantains, which are also good. But how often do we find ourselves assuming that there is a certain amount in God's kingdom? And once that's gone, scarcity. So we serve out of the dregs, out of the bottom of our lives, feeling like we can barely make it. But the opposite is true. God has an abundance to give from. After everyone has eaten... All 5,000 men and even more women and children, there are 12 baskets of food left over. I mean, that almost seems unnecessary, gratuitous, 12 baskets of food. I would imagine the disciples waited until everyone else had eaten, and then they were able to eat and be filled. What a perfect metaphor we have in these leftovers, that by feeding others, we ourselves are going to be fed. We're invited to serve out of God's abundance, not out of scarcity. In a way, the end of this miracle kind of explains the beginning. When all these people come running to Jesus, he stops, he welcomes them, and he heals their diseases and he preaches to them because he knows that he is giving from an abundance. There's not a limited supply. There might not be enough to go around. Jesus knows God's love is unending, overflowing, abundant. And it is with that same love, it's through that same love that we are able to participate in God's kingdom. So often when we come to the table that God has set before us, a table full of God's abundance, we don't accept the invitation. It's like when I look at the table and it would be overflowing with, with food, our favorite kinds of food. The plates are piled high and the cups are overflowing. We look at it and we think, wow, our eyes almost pop out of our head. I want to be a part of that. I want to dive in. I want to participate in that abundance. But I think it's probably easier if I just, maybe if I just sit underneath a table. I can probably just some collect some crumbs that fall to the floor. That'll be enough to sustain me. That'll be enough. I'll just be able to get by with that. Why do we settle for crumbs? God wants us to sit at his banqueting table, not so we can get by, so we can settle for crumbs. But because God wants us to thrive, God wants us to know his abundance. God wants us to know the nourishment that he has for our lives. Scripture is filled of images of God setting a banquet before those who are hungry, providing a feast for people in need. Psalm 107 is one of my favorites. It says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and the hungry he fills with good things. Tonight, we get to come to a table that signifies God's abundance, the communion table. And just like he did in this miracle, when Jesus is in the upper room the night before he died, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he distributed distributed it out among his disciples. And this is a table where we do not have to settle for crumbs. We can know and accept and experience the fullness of God's love and the overflowing grace He has for each of us. Are we limiting what God can do in each of us? What God can do in our church, through our church, by only being willing to count to seven? When we take inventory of what's right in front of us, do we forget to add and one to that? Our Christian faith is nothing if it's not supernatural. If we can't trust that the insignificant can be made abundant if it doesn't believe in the miraculous capabilities of faith in Jesus. Gracious God, we want to know your abundance. We come to you now knowing that the fullness of your abundance is available to all of us. And it's through that abundance that we discover more of what it means to serve in your name. And we discover more of what it means to know you. I pray that tonight, as we come to the table, we can be reminded. We don't have to settle for crumbs. But we can be filled with your overflowing love and your abundant grace. In your holy name, amen.